0: Chapter 12 of the Black Eagle Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Overby, Parkland, Washington. Dedicated to Uni. The Black Eagle Mystery by Geraldine Bonner. Chapter 12. Jack tells the story. Inside an hour o'malley babbitts and i were on our way to philadelphia all friction was forgotten a bigger issue had extinguished the sparks that had come near bursting into flame a mutual desire united us the finding of barker the train an express seemed to crawl like a tortoise but the way i felt i guessed the flight of an aeroplane would have been slow i had hideous fears that he might give us the slip but o'malley was confident one of his men had got a lead on barker through a vendor of newspapers from whom the capitalist, twice in the last week had purchased the big new york dailies it had taken several days to locate his place of hiding a quiet boarding-house far removed from the centre of the city which was now under surveillance as we swung through the night shut close in a smog-filled compartment we speculated as to whether he would try and throw a bluff or see the game was up and tell the truth at the station o'malley's man met us and the four of us piled into a taxi and started on a run across town it was moonlight and going down those quiet streets lined with big houses and then with little houses still dwindling vistas sleeping in the silver radiance seemed to me the longest drive i'd ever taken in my life as we sped the detective gave us further particulars by his instructions the newsstand man who left the morning papers at the boarding-house had got into communication with the servant a colored girl from her he had learnt that barker he passed under the name of joseph had been away for twenty-four hours, and had come back that morning so ill that a doctor had been called in. The doctor had said the man's heart was weak, and that his condition looked like the result of a strain or shock. Questioned further, the girl had said he was a pleasant, civil-spoken old gentleman, giving no trouble to anybody. He went out very little, sitting in his room most of the time, reading the papers. He received no mail there, but that he did get letters she had found out, as she had seen one on his table addressed to the general delivery. The house was on a street, quiet and deserted at this early hour, one of a row all built alike. As we climbed out of the taxi, the moon was bright, the shadows lying like black velvet across the lonely roadway. On the opposite side, loitering slow, was a man who, raising a hand to his hat, passed on into the darkness along the area railings. Though it was only a little after nine, many of the houses showed the blankness of unlit windows. But in the place where we had stopped, a fanlight over the door glowed in a yellow semicircle. As the taxi moved off, we three, O'Malley's detective, slipped away into the shadow like a ghost, walked up a little path to the front door, where I pulled an old-fashioned bell handle. I could hear the sound go jingling through the hall, loud and cracked, and then steps, languid and dragging, come from somewhere in the rear. I was to act as spokesman, my cue being to ask for Mr. Samus on a matter of urgent business. The door was opened by the colored girl, who looked at us stupidly and then said she'd call miss graves the landlady as she didn't think anyone could see mr sammis standing back from the door she led us into a hall with a hat rack on one side and a flight of stairs going up the back the light was dim coming from a globe held aloft by a figure that crowned the newel post the paper on the walls some dark striped pattern seemed to absorb what little radiance there was and the whole place smelled musty and was as quiet as a church The colored girl had disappeared down a long passage, and presently a door opened back there, and a woman came out, tall and thin, in a skimpy black dress. She approached us as we stood in a group by the hat rack, leaning forward nearsightedly and blinking at us through silver-rimmed spectacles. My maid says you want to see Mr. Samus, she said, in an unamiable voice. Yes, I answered. We've come from New York, and it's imperative we see him this evening. But you can't she snapped he's sick the doctor says he mustn't be disturbed talking it over afterward we all confessed that we were seized by the same idea that this lanky old spinster might be in the game and barker's illness was a fake feeling as i did i was ready to leap forward grab her and lock her in her own parlor while the others chased up the stairs i could sense the slight uneasy stir of the two men beside me and i tried to inject a determination into my voice that while it was civil was also informing i'm sorry but it's absolutely necessary that we transact our business with him now can't you give me a message she demurred squinting her eyes up behind the glasses i'll see that it's delivered in the morning no madam this is important and it can't wait we won't be long we only have to consult with him for a few minutes she gave a shrug as much as to say well this is your affair and drawing back pointed to the stairs he's up there fourth floor front second door to your left to each of us the suspicion that she was in with barker had grown with every minute the idea once lodged in our minds possessed them and we went up those stairs slow at first and then as we got out of earshot faster and faster it was a run on the second flight and a gallop on the third on this landing there was no gas-lit but a window at the end of the passage let in a square of moonlight that lay bright on the floor and showed us the hall's dim length and the outlines of closed doors it was the second of these on the left-hand side and creeping toward it we stood for a moment getting our wind the place was very cold as if a window was open and there was not a sound standing by the door o'malley knocked softly there was no answer in that half-lit passage chilled with the icy breath of the winter night and held in a strange stillness i was seized by a grisly sense of impending horror If I'd been a small boy, my teeth would have begun to chatter. At thirty years of age, that doesn't happen, but I doubt whether anyone whose body was supplied with an ordinary active nervous system would not have felt something sinister in that cold, dark place, in the silence behind that closed shut door. O'Malley knocked again and again. There was no answer. Try it, I whispered, and the detective turned the handle. Locked, he breathed back, then. Stand away there. I'm going to break it. There's something wrong here. He turned sideways, bracing his shoulder against the door. There was a cracking sound, and the lock, embedded in old soft wood, gave way, the door swinging in with O'Malley hanging to the handle. The room was unlit, but for the silver moonlight that came from the window, uncurtained and open. At that sight, the same thought seized the three of us. The man was gone. And O'Malley, fumbling in his pocket for matches, broke into furious profanity. I had a box, and as I dug round for it, took a look about and saw the shapes of a chair with garments hanging over it an open desk and against the opposite wall the bed it was only a pale oblong and looked irregular as if the clothes were heaped on it as the man had thrown them back i could have joined o'malley in his swearing gone when our fingers were closing on him then i found the matches and the gas burnt over our heads my eyes were on the bed and o'malley's must have been for simultaneously i gave an exclamation and he leaped forward there asleep under the covers lay a man quick as a flash of lightning the detective was beside him bending to look close at the face then he drew back with a sound a cry of amazement disbelief and pulling off the bedclothes laid his hand on the sleeper's chest god in heaven he gasped turning to us he's dead babbitts and i made a rush for the bed i to the head where i leaned low to make sure staring into the gray pale face with its prominent nose and sunken eyes then it was my turn to cry out to stagger back looking from one man to the other aghast at what i'd seen it's not baka at all for a moment we stared at one another jaws fallen eyes stony not a word came from one of us the silence broken by the hissing rush of the gas turned up full cock in the sputtering ribbon of flame i came to myself first turned from them back to the dead face It's marble calm in strange contrast to the stunned consternation of the living faces. It's not he, I repeated. I've often seen him. It's not the man. Well, stammered O'Malley, coming out of his stupor. Who on earth is it? How do I know? Samus, I suppose. It's like him, the nose and the eyes and the eyebrows and the mustache, but... I looked at them, gazing like two stupefied animals at the head on the pillow. It's not Johnston Barker. O'Malley, with a groan of baffled desperation, fell into a chair, his hands hanging over the arms, his feet limp on the floor before him. Babbitt stood paralyzed, leaning on the foot of the bed. It was an extraordinary situation. Three live men, hot on the chase of a fourth, and in the moment of victory faced by the most inscrutable and solemn thing that life holds, a dead man. We couldn't get over it, couldn't seem to think or act grouped round the bed with the whistling rush of the gas, loud on the silence. Then suddenly, another and more distant sound broke up our stupefaction. Someone was coming up the stairs. It jerked us back to life and I made a run for the door, O'Malley's whisper hissing after me. If it's that woman, keep her away for a while. I want to go over the room. It was Miss Graves, ascending slowly with the help of the balustrade. I caught her on the landing and told her what we'd found. She was not greatly surprised. The doctor had warned her. I explained the broken door by telling her that we had been alarmed by the silence and had forced our way in. That, too, she took quietly and turned away, gliding shadow-like down the stairs to send out the servant for the doctor. When I re-entered the room, its aspect was changed. A sheet covered the dead man, and O'Malley and Babbitts, with all the burners in the chandelier blazing, had started looking over the room. The detective was already at work on the papers in the desk, Babbitts going through the clothes over the chair and the few others that hung in the cupboard. Hustle and get busy said O'Malley, as he heard me coming in. If this isn't Johnston Barker, it's the man we've been trailing, and I'm pretty sure it's the one that attacked Ford. There was a table by the bedside, with a reading lamp and some books on it. Moving these, I came upon two newspaper clippings, relating to the suicide of Harland. In both, Anthony Ford was mentioned. The reporter had evidently spoken to him that night on the street, gleaning any fragments of information they could. One alluded to the fact that he was employed in the office below Harland's, the Azalea Woods Estates. Those words were heavily underlined in pencil. "'Looks like it from this,' I said, showing the clipping to O'Malley. He glanced at it and grunted, going back to his inspection on a sheaf of papers he had found in one of the desk pigeonholes. Meantime, Babbitts had found in the coat that hung over the chair a wallet containing a hundred dollars. A tailor's bill for a suit and coat, receipted and bearing a New York address." and Tony Ford's house and street number written in pencil on a neatly folded sheet of notepaper. Besides these, there was one letter, dated January 13th, typed and bearing no signature. Its content was as follows. Enclosed, please find one hundred dollars and two bills of fifty. We'll send the same amount on the same date next month if work should be still delayed. We'll communicate further later. The envelope, also addressed in typewriting, was directed to Joseph Sammis. General Delivery, Philadelphia, and bore a New York postmark. We were working too quickly for much comment, but Babbitts held out the paper with Ford's address on it toward O'Malley. "'This bears it out, too,' he said. O'Malley looked at it and snapped the elastic back on the documents he'd been going over. "'From what I've seen here,' he said, "'Samus was the man Ford was with in the real estate business. These are all contracts, bills, and some correspondence.' the records of a small venture that went to smash. He pushed the roll back in his pigeonhole. Not another thing. "'It is not another thing in the room,' I answered. "'Except two novels, and a sack of New York papers on the floor there by the Bureau. "'Hiss! <laughs> Quiet!' There were feet coming up the stairs. In a twinkling, everything was as it had been. Babbitts and O'Malley withdrew through the window, and I went out to see who was coming. It was Miss Graves and the doctor.' I explained the situation, and found the doctor brusquely businesslike like in matter-of-fact. It was what might have been expected. When he had been called in that morning, he had found Mr. Samus a very sick man, suffering from angina pectoris, and a general condition of debility and exhaustion. He had asked him if he had been subjected to any recent exertion, or strain, but had been told no other than the trip the day before to Washington. Miss Graves said it was undoubtedly this trip that had done the damage he had been well when he started on tuesday morning but on returning twenty-four hours later had been so weak and enfeebled that one of the other lodgers had had to assist him to his room an examination proved that he had been dead some hours who his relations were or where he came from miss graves had no idea and would turn the matter over to the authorities it was close on midnight when we left and there being no vehicle in sight we walked up the street the moon was as bright as day and swinging along between those two lines of black houses, with here and there a light shining yellow in an upper window, we were silent, each occupied by his own thoughts. I could guess those of the other two Babbitt's chagrin at once again losing his big story, O'Malley's sullen indignation at having followed a clue that led to such a blind alley. But their disappointment and bitterness were nothing to mine, all my hopes gone again, and this last puzzle helping in no way, in no way, as I then counted help. End of chapter 12.